Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Okay, as I try to do every year, I like kicking off a new year with a big splash of a guest, and this year, we're doing it with Stephen Haig. Now this producer, I, I try to think about the, the people who shaped the music that I love more than anything, and Stephen's right up there. I mean, his career has gone back to the 70s. In fact, way back then, he was like a session musician in LA. But in the 80s, for some reason, this American became the go-to guy for creating what was the most revolutionary and radical pop music, specifically synth pop, I think, from the UK music of the 80s there's ever been. The, he works with New Order. He works with OMD. He works with Erasure. He works with Pet Shop Boys. That's why you're listening to West End Girls right here. Now, his career goes well beyond that. Let me tell you something. I hope this isn't disappointing to you, but recently, so I've been trying to get Steven on here for years and it didn't work out until recently. Well, our friend Mark at 80sography, that wonderful podcast, had Steven on recently and they did a massive four-part series on his entire 80s career. He beat me to it. So because of that and because Mark did such a thorough job on that show, we don't get into the 80s in here, even though that's really the period where he earned his bona fides. We cover the 90s, which includes a lot. There's still New Order and Pet Shop Boys in there. There's uh, Robbie Robertson, Susie and the Banshees, Peter Gabriel, James, Dubstar, the Blow Monkeys. Anyway, we cover all of that. Robert Palmer, we cover all of that in here, as well as his early days in the 70s. As I mentioned, he came up through that L.A. session musician scene. He worked closely with former guest Walter Egan, our buddy, and he was a member of Jules Shear's band, Jules and the Polar Bears. That's where this really began. So you're probably, it probably doesn't make sense to you, but the guy who created the best, most revolutionary pop music coming out of England in the 80s is an American. Anyway, I uh, so I would encourage you, highly encourage you, to go listen to those uh, to that series that Stephen did on 80sography, because if you're going to come in here and you're going to think, well, that's not really the whole story, or how could you leave out the part, the 80s, which was so big in his career, I know. But when you go listen to that series, you'll see why I didn't need to cover it again because it was done so well. Anyway, we try to get to as much as we can. Stephen is one of the legends of music, and again, I can't think of too many people more responsible for creating my taste in music. Than Stephen Haig. He called me from one of his homes in Paris. We, I want to kick this off with talking about Storyville because mm. um, that's that just, I think, had its 30th anniversary. I remember buying that album when it came out because, as a lot of people probably feel this way, I was a gigantic fan of the first Robbie Robertson solo album. It's still one of yeah, my favorite yeah. albums of all time. Yeah, it's great. And uh, and I see Storyville there, and I'm like, oh, I have to have this too. And I buy it, and I I put it on, and it's just different than I had in mind. It's very mature. It's very. It's more. It feels like New Orleans. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't appreciate it as much then as I do now, for sure. But I just. Um, and a lot, I think a lot of people feel that way. I think that a lot of people were expecting Robbie Robertson part two and they got something different. First and foremost, why were you even 
no offense to you, selected yeah. to be the guy to produce that album. You're the Pet Believe Shop me, Boys guy. I, com- I completely understand you're asking that question. Um, it it was a surprise to me too. Uh, they were they were casting about looking for um, producers, obviously, and uh, Gary Gersh at uh, Geffen. Um, really like some of my stuff and I was in LA coincidentally and it was just sort of one of those kind of why not sort of scenarios you know and and I I grew up you know listening to to the band you know you know some of my more formative records were around that time right the late 60s and and the their second album in particular the band was um was a bit of a monument for me there for a while I was listening to radio when um when late night FM radio was new and they were playing entire albums, for instance, and those days are long gone, but, but um, they played the band album one night and I didn't really know much about it. I hadn't heard hardly anything on the first album or I knew it existed, but um, yeah, I was swept up in it. And from that point forward and I, you know, I sort of followed their ups and downs and there were quite a lot of downs after that album. Um, And then leading up to the last swells, blah, blah, blah. And so anyway, I was a huge fan. And I can't say I was starstruck going in, but I was really happy to be there, really happy to meet him. And and he was just, he is just a wonderful guy and a, an amazing raconteur. And we had a, a great meeting. We went to lunch and and I thought, right, I'm on this long list. You know, it seems like a real long shot. And then I got the call and and I heard later Gary Gersh said, uh, well, you know, Bobby said, well, you know, he, he he knows what he's doing. He's made some records that I think are interesting. And he didn't say anything stupid in the meeting, <laughs> which I, which I, which I guess was um, maybe he'd come up against some, other uh-huh. <laughs> but who knows? But, um, but anyway, so I signed on and it was as much a surprise to me as to a lot of other people at the time. And um, we arranged for the time. Uh, it all happened uh, well certainly kicking it off in Los Angeles and uh, we were talking about players and I brought in a couple of players most notably uh, Guy Pratt on bass um, mm-hmm. who was um, I just talked to him recently we oh, talked really? about he's, this too. Oh, he's, he's great he, he might he might be able to fill in some of the blanks on this that I can't mm-hmm. really remember very well but mm-hmm. But uh, he came out. Um, uh, Robbie brought um, uh, Bill Dylan, who I'd never met before, who I'm still friends with, and who's an amazing musician, um, guitarist, uh, extraordinaire. Uh, and he uh, he came down from Canada. You know, they went way back to those days. Uh, Garth Hudson did some keyboards revolving. I mean, I'm sure you've seen the list of credits. It's been looking right at it right now. Yeah, yep. sometimes I felt like I was directing a movie. You know, you, <laughs> and you see the when you see the list at the end, and Jesus Christ! Like, and, <laughs> and some people, some people I'd met, you know, like the Blue Nile guys. I'd met in passing, yep. and and um, one reason why I feel it has a different flavor from the first album, his first solo album, is that he had years and years um of accumulating um well of writing and, and coming up with songs and and when he and daniel and uh, got together i think there was quite a lot of stuff that they had to choose from um mm-hmm. which helped them shape it as for the tone of it um the quality of the songs when we started he had almost no songs he had like um maybe a half a dozen propositions mm-hmm. <laughs> um and he but he wanted to do this thing and it's something you'll see and peter gabriel know each other quite well mm-hmm. and um and peter actually kind of chimed in when when robbie was actually he, he'd had his meeting with me and and uh, peter put in a good word for me because mm-hmm. peter 
often works in the studio to getting a vibe going um, and just getting a groove and throwing some chords at it and letting it happen in an organic way. Whereas both Robbie and Peter, at some point in their careers, used to sit down at a piano or guitar and write a song. And Robbie, for whatever reason, wasn't hadn't really been doing much of that, didn't have the time for it, mm. and was interested in this other approach, which is the one that we took. And so we assembled the this group of players in a in a rehearsal room and Robbie played a few of the ideas and it was I'm not much of a jam session kind of guy, but there was a lot of that going on. And and the the basis for almost all the songs came out of those sessions, but it was it was kind of a um not unnerving experience for me. Um but historically I've been used to Here's the song. There's almost yeah. always a demo. You work on the structure. Sure. How about what's going on with this bit of lyric here? Have you thought about this? Da 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 da. And then you routine things out. Um, get a band in a room, play what you know is what you're going to go forward with, and then start making a record. Um, but this happened from a totally different angle. Did he at least have the concept of New Orleans down, or did that come um, well, about later too? That well, you know, we've you know, one thing that we shared in the first meeting is that I've I've just loved New Orleans music, you know, since yeah. I was first exposed to it, Alan Toussaint, and the, you know all this stuff, mm-hmm. and um, and um, you know, going way back to the greats in the fifties and sixties, and and I'd been to New Orleans a couple of times. And had a real, real feel for the flavor. Well, I can't say it had a real feel for it, but you know, I, mm-hmm. I certainly had my idea of of what New Orleans meant to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and through conversations with Robbie, there was a connection there. You know, kind of a sensibility and the the artists that you know, I knew some of the more kind of obscure, you know, mm-hmm. people. You know, people like the Wild Chapatulas, for instance, oh, um, sure. which um, I loved a couple of those records and Robbie did too. And it was like, oh, you know them too. And, you know, so that was kind of part of our original connection where he thought maybe I wasn't just a British pop guy after all. You know? <laughs> um, and also he knew some of my stuff from before I started making pop records. And okay. Anyway, I'm going to so ask it, you about that too. And it wasn't like, a, it wasn't, I wasn't too much of a fish out of water in his okay. mind. Okay. Um, and so yeah, so the whole the whole process was was built around seeing what we could get going, and then Robbie would write on top. Um, and a lot of people do that. Um, and the, the the one thing about this is that we were spending a lot of money right from the word go. Um, there were there were just a whole um, well, basically a band was in from out of town, being put up in accommodations. Um, I had rented a small little house in West LA. And uh, and I lived in LA for ages, you know, so I, I knew the town really well. I, I felt totally comfortable being there. And sometimes Robbie would be delighted with how it was going, and other times I think he felt like something different should be happening. Um, and it probably would have been if the songs were if, if we had songs yeah. finished, because we weren't writing together, for instance. Um, and and he, but he would go up into his office at um, at uh, Village Recorders in West LA. And he'd work on lyrics and melodies and I'd come check in and and then on on something that we had that we knew we were going to go forward with, I would be recording stuff in one of the studios downstairs. He'd check in on that. Okay. And so on a good day, it was really vibey and upbeat and forward looking. And and on 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 some of the days where it was a, a little less focused. <laughs> we were, yeah. we, and, and, and Gary Grish would come down for the record company knowing how much was being spent all the time. You know, so yeah. anyway, the feeling of the album was um 
complex. Let's put it yeah. that way. Um, yeah. uh, it ranged from um, from very very good and and being thrilled with what we were getting from these amazing players uh, to um, thinking that yes, it's taking a long time. Yes, it's costing a lot of money. Do we really like these songs? Are these the songs you would have brought to the studio had you had five years to write them? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a bit of a factor on you. Yeah, just we went to New Orleans which was one of the, the best parts of the project for me. We were down there for ooh, four or five, six weeks, I think. And I got to be in a room recording um, Aaron Neville and, and got Alan Toussaint and working on horn arrangement stuff. It was a real dream come true, you know, for somebody who had had some, uh, who was kind of seeped in the lore as I was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, Robbie, of course, knew the owner of the coolest restaurant. And you know what I mean? It just, I really felt like I was part of something. Yeah. You know? um, Let me ask you about, do you mind if I interrupt real quick? I want to ask yeah, yeah, you about on. the budget because this had to have been a, an, a you touched on it, an incredibly expensive record. And I'm wondering, you know, that first Robbie album maybe went gold. I doubt it went platinum. And so I'm wondering what, why so much money was allotted to this. For instance, I mean, I'm looking at the list here. Just drummers. You have John J.R. Robinson, who's one of the greatest drummers of all time. You have yeah. Jerry Murata, who's one of the greatest drummers of all time. Who, who and, I knew before as well, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, and Ginger Baker plays Skip Snare on Shake This Town. Ginger Baker from from Africa to play Skip <laughs> Snare for a few minutes on one song. Well, like, you know you, that who, who greenlights all of this? Let's not forget Z- Ziggy Modeless, You know who? Um, yes, everything else. I mean, that I just yeah, named and he, three. He and he he was in town. Ginger was an interesting guy to work with. He one thing we found out because we were doing. One thing that I brought into it, which was controversial, but Robbie really started to get it after a while, is that we were recording to um, click tracks, because because when with these different performances coming in, um, sometimes weeks after the previous performance on on some song, he really started to appreciate the idea that things would lock up if you made a slave on another machine that he could work to in his office it wouldn't be a big procedure to then bring that information onto the masters you understand um, you, you know mm-hmm. the idea that it was mm-hmm. that once we decided on the tempo that we would be riding that rail all the way through mm-hmm. um and so ginger maker amazing drummer of course um wasn't used wasn't used to that whereas jerry Murata was for instance mm-hmm. i mean he'd been playing the clicks since the gabriel days you know um 
And so that was very natural to him and a couple of the other drummers as well. Ziggy did pretty good with it, actually, because, you know, so much so much of what he does is happening on the top kit anyway. You know, the way the way he <laughs> the way he makes love to his hi-hat and the groove, you know, it's like it's um, it's sort of he could just kind of float on top of it. Whereas mm-hmm. we tried to record a couple of things with Ginger being the engine playing to these click tracks and it was tough and it was, yeah. and he, and, and he knew he wasn't delivering it. it you know, it wasn't, um, yeah, it wasn't, it just wasn't happening basically. Huh. Uh, certainly not because of, of his acumen, you know, but just because of his experience with it um, yeah. and, and uh, that particular way of, of working. Uh, and so we did do, um, some stuff where he he did sort of what I'm describing that Ziggy had done. You know, he he kind of uh, played along on top. You know, instead of having having to su- supply the the weight and the predictability of the backbeat and the downbeat. And so yeah, that worked out good. But is it is it is a funny credit, isn't it? I forgot. Wild. About yeah. So, but <laughs> yeah. I mean, the the album probably did okay, but not. It was nothing special. It, it did uh, okay. The press I, press was medium. You know. It's yeah. Like, you know, pe- uh, but. And I, I, I'm not pointing any, you know, I'm not saying that the Robbie somehow fell short, but, but you know, there, it was a relatively quick turnaround between the two albums because they wanted to keep the momentum going. And he just didn't have the songs, you know, I mean, he, and he's, in my mind, one of the premier American songwriters, you know, you know, he's just has an amazing catalog behind him. Um, so it certainly isn't that he did, wasn't capable of it, but he, but just at that point in his life, he was interested in working in a different way. And, yeah. uh, and okay. so the results in my mind were, were somewhat mixed. I mean, I think there's some really good things on the album that I'm yeah. really pleased with. Um, and also I, I just had a blast working with some of those people. And when well, I could were, imagine, I mean, not to pigeonhole you, but having come from, little synthesizer duos like erasure and pet shop boys. And now you're working with this gigantic budget with every classic, incredible musician (laughs) of the last 30 years at your disposal. That's gotta be a whole new experience for you. Or maybe it's not, I don't know. Well, well not, not, I wouldn't say, um, I certainly understand you asking that question. Um, um, musically, not so much really. Um, okay. but, but certainly in terms of my responsibility in the producer's chair, um, yeah. the, I, I hadn't, I hadn't really, um, been on anything with quite that scope. I've been in some albums that had pretty big budgets and some of that was my fault at the time, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. but, but, um, because, you know, going way back in my formative years, you know, um, being in bands like Jules and the Polar Bears and stuff, we were basically a rock band, you know, and, yeah. and I'd work with a lot of great players, um, and certainly knew the difference between a great player and the kid who's in a scrappy band playing drums, you know, I, you know, I, it wasn't like I didn't like, it was a, a new, um, frontier for me or something mm-hmm. but but, okay. but having but having you, you, you know what i mean and I'll, and also like when i was working when i was in that band with jules shearer the, with the polar bears you know the records we were listening to you know were very it's very eclectic blend of stuff and in the synth pop thing for me in the 80s um was um although i took to it like a duck to water and sort of arguably helped invent some elements of it i yeah, suppose you did. know but, it was a bit, a bit circumstantial um, and uh, it was an opportunity I couldn't pass up and I helped, I kind of made it my own and and to a point where I get bagged with it, you, you know, how mm-hmm. that can happen, you know? Um, sure. And so I had to sort of, although I don't know if we talked about this, but, you know, but I was certainly doing some stuff in the, in the late eighties in particular that um, almost consciously trying to 
not not disown the that thing in any way the kind of synth pop duo thing but um, um make sure that that wasn't the only thing that people thought right. too <laughs> i had a feeling i wondered yeah. about that um, yeah and then and then when robbie came along it was like the icing on that particular part yep. of the cake you know this like well yeah. this should seal it you know shouldn't it um and in some people's minds perhaps it did a little bit i don't know but but, but the that out that in fact it went on so long the uh, that uh, the uh, production period for that that i had to um go back to england to do something i i committed to already which was uh, the susie and the banshees album so i did that the susie the and the banshees i did that album um like on hiatus from robbie's album and then and then i went back uh, and, that was the next thing i was going to ask you about um i i mean you know this kiss them for me still sounds as exciting and fresh as it did in 1991. I got, I remember getting Superstition, that CD for my 18th birthday in June of oh, 1991. Wow. And um, I love, I mean, Kiss Them For Me, that was really probably the biggest mark they made in the States, at least on pop radio. They were, um, you know, legends yeah, on college and, and, and alternative and, radio, but this was and, starting to break and, through. And and she, and, you know, video being what it was back then, well, yeah. still is, but you know what I mean? Um, yep. She looked, she looked stunning in the video um, and it was, um, yeah, just kind of opened up another area for them. One, one more thing, just because it was on my mind, one, one more thing on the, um, on the Robbie record, yeah. if we're, assuming we're leaving that now, yeah, we're <clears throat> working with all these players and, and when Neil Young came in the studio, who I was a huge fan of, like in the same way as I was with the band yeah. um, around that time, Buffalo Springfield, his early solo stuff, um, and also his more rough and ready solo stuff. I, I, I just always really dug the guy, you know, and he came in and he, in fact, he drove down from, he drove down this big Cadillac thing from uh, where he lived up, up in the Bay area. Um, and he, uh, he drove down and, and, and he was there. We all kind of met, we had dinner and he was going to come in the next day. And my sister, is an enormous fan of, of Neil Young. And she said, Oh, you know, autograph, autograph. And I'm not the autograph type, uh -huh. um, but, uh -huh. but, um, but I, I wanted to get something for her. And so I swung by Tower Records um, and um, was looking through the Neil Young stuff. And there was a copy of Zuma. And I don't know if you're familiar with that album. Mm -hmm. I have um, Zuma. 
but you know, mostly a white album with a line drawing, if I recall. Mm-hmm, you, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's not lots perfect, of space for an lots of space for an autograph. autograph. Yeah, exactly. Yep. <laughs> um, and so I brought it in, and Neil came in. I was like, "Hi, how you doing?" You know, and and um, I was sitting at the desk, and I was preparing some slaves for him to sing to, or something like that. And he was kind of quiet in the back, back, um, back on the sofa in the back of the studio. And then Robbie came in, and hey, I did, da da da. And then they sat down together. And um, it's still all quiet. And I turned around and Robbie had looked over to Neil and said, uh, what you got there? He said, uh, oh, Stephen brought this in. I was going to sign it for his sister. And Robbie looked at it and go, oh. And uh, Neil said, uh, you remember this, don't you? And uh, Robbie says, yeah. And because, um, you know, Zuma was a, a an adjacent sort of um, enclave to Malibu. Mm-hmm. And when a lot of the, the rockers in, um, in Los Angeles moved out from the, from the valleys, they ended up at the beach and it was as far west as they could go. Wow. And, um, and the, there was a bit of a colony there. And, and I overheard Neil's saying to Robbie, he said, you know, man, we were lucky to get out of there alive. And, and that was when uh, Coke had really kicked into the music scene in LA and um and he and, and neil said i talked to him about it after and, and neil said yeah because yeah man people were like burning down their houses free basing and shit oh. and, the, and it was marriages were breaking up and the car crashes and stuff he said it was and a, and a couple of people did die apparently and and then robbie and i talked about it a bit on the back of that and and yeah robbie said you know like around in the in the uh in the late 60s um when they were working on the early band stuff in new york um, their pot dealers started bringing around Coke, um, saying that, um, oh yeah, man, you can you can work longer and stuff. You feel bright, you know, it's cool, you know. And and so they um, they thought, yeah, we'll, we'll give it a go. And then Robbie said a year later they were fucked. You know, oh. you know, he said he said they were like recording the stage fight album with the with saucers full of Coke at each recording station. He just said it was terrible. And and um, and but he said and Neil agreed. He said, you know. At that at that period, um, there were there were no cautionary tales really about about cocaine. Um, they became the cautionary tales. Yeah, that yeah, that, gen- that generation, and it's it's amazing to me that it's still even around today. You know, in, in the business, but it, and certainly not like it used to used to be. Right. But, and, I, and I was never one of the coke people, but that was one thing that always stuck in my mind was. Uh, Robbie and Neil looking at the Zuma cover. Oh, <laughs> that is recalling, beautiful color. I love rec- that. Rec- rec- wow. Recalling, I mean, it's recalling, recalling yeah. about old days, you know. Sad story, but still just to have witnessed that. Okay. So Susie, um, Susie. I mean, there's other great songs on the album, Shadow Time and Fear and stuff like that. But um, tell me about the the creation of Kiss Them For Me, because it's. I think what makes it special is a lot of the Indian influence that's in there. Um, I don't know whether Budgie is such a fantastic drummer and percussionist. I wondered if he brought that kind of flavor to that song or if that's something well, I, you I had a hand in. I don't um, I don't remember who actually suggested Talvin Singh, um, I, but I'm pretty sure I didn't know him first. I think it might have been Steve Severin. Uh, or or budgie but uh, Thomas sings a, a and he he went on to make records and you know yeah. he, he, he corner was, shop uh, yeah that's right um great kid really really young at the time gifted player um and he um and he came in and we were just you know i was it wasn't my idea to develop that as a um kind of i don't know what you want to call it sort of worldy sort of influence or something like that it was um it was just kind of an organic process and then when he when he came on board he came down to the studio i think it was some in two days he came down and 
I was just amazed what a good player he is. You know, just just the, the tabla thing, playing tabla like he was fifty years old, and I think he was about nineteen. Uh, and he uh, and he really, really brought something to it, and, and suddenly it was becoming what it became. And then then Steve Severn had a couple ideas. I had a couple ideas. Um, you know, like sort of that. Um, in fact, the um, the kind of loping. Um, um, string part that comes in a couple of times, which uh, I thought of as being kind of Beatles esque, but of that mm, um, very of much George, so. of the George Harrison period. You, you know what I mean? Very much so. yep. I get it. I know exactly that, what you're talking that, about. That came that came after the tablas. You know, it's just one of those those processes where it created itself each step mm. of the way. Um, wow! It's and a then masterpiece. the and then the dulcimer thing, the ding, 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 which I lifted directly off Strawberry Fields. Um, you know, I mean, not not as a sample. Don't get me wrong. Don't right. contact the legal department. But um, but it's but it's the exact same. It's the exact same yeah. phrase. Yeah, it's the exact same sound. Makes so much sense. Yeah, yes, that's the way it goes. Those sessions, um, we all got along really, really well. Um, and then then there was, um, as we were routining things and rehearsing some stuff, they did have songs ready to go, which I had encouraged them to do because I only had so much time to make that record before I had to go back to Robbie's thing. And then we started doing vocals. And the first time we did vocals, um, I can remember this quite clearly, because Nigel Godrich was the assistant on, oh, on those wow. sessions. Yeah, he was working at Rack Studios where we were at the time. And he'd, he'd uh, assisted on a couple of things for me and who, who's going on to, shall we say, great things, but um, yes, very much. fabulous guy too. We're still friends. Um, uh, anyway, he, um, he had set up as per my request, you know, the, the place for the vocals to be like, I would have set them up for anyone, you know? And, mm -hmm. and then Susie came in and it was like, okay, which song you want to sing? Yep. Great. Okay. Let's go. We're ready to go. And, and, um, and I've always been, in my mind, good, good with singers. I've always gotten good performances from people. Um, and But Susie was having a bit of trouble. I wasn't quite sure why. She just seemed a bit out of sorts. And I, I didn't think much of it. I just thought I, I've seen many singers just be a bit out of sorts. You know, it's fine. And and I said, well, why don't we just try this again tomorrow? She, she said, yeah, okay, we'll do it tomorrow. It's fine. And then she went home. And then the next morning, quite early, I got a call from Steve Seffern <laughs> at home. And... Um, I said, hi, how are you doing? And he goes, oh, yeah, I'm fine. But uh, Susie's not happy. And um, I said, Susie's not happy. Um, discuss. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. he, and he said, he said, I'll tell you what it is. Um, and he, he was he was telling me, like, um, not that he was um, making any excuses for it or mm -hmm. felt embarrassed by it, but something that he knew about her, that when she would do vocal performances, she wanted it to be just a bit more of an event. Um, oh. and, and, um, and when he... And we talked about it for a minute, and then I totally got it. I, I, I totally understood it. Um, and so um, the next evening when she came to sing, um, I'd had I'd put her in a slightly different place. Uh -huh. There was there was a there was a glass of champagne there. I was going to say, did you did you, did you changed, wear a tuxedo? Yeah, we had a couple of court, courtiers around and, right. and uh, played of bonbons. And, 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 no, I mean, I didn't I, I didn't overdo it. I didn't want her to feel sure. self conscious, like like Stephen talked to me, which she might have thought had happened. Anyway. But it was right. it was a genuine thing. I know how to do that. Yeah, I, yeah. I, it just yeah. wasn't my first instinct. But once I knew. That, that was something that she would respond to then i was happy to do it you know and mm -hmm. and um, and sure enough she just sang her heart out you, you know it's like this all it took you know it was just um it was me being not quite reading the situation yeah. as, I'm, as i might have and then um, 
and then and then correcting the situation that is fascinating <laughs> and, then, and then for the rest and then for the rest of the session um you know there was we just plowed right through it it was great um and then um, they asked me to do another thing with them a couple of years later for the uh for that batman movie face to face oh yeah yeah Yes, that's that's not a bad record. No, um, and also she looks amazing in that video as well. Yes, um, and I did that with Danny Elfman. Well, you know, well, I did I did the heavy lifting on the record, but um, but Danny, who I knew from the old days because Oingo Boingo were doing the circuit in L.A. when Jules and the Polar Bears were. Oh, I love Oingo Boingo so yeah. much. And uh, yeah, it was it was an interesting time in L.A. I um, bet. And, and then um, we were also we were also sharing a stage with an act, and we could do I could do hours on the L.A. I years, believe it. Oh, some other, some other time, but yeah, we, and we were doing, um, we were sending stuff back and forth with a very early rudimentary form of file transfer that, that had to do with, um, you had to get British Telecom and AT&T involved and stuff like that. And you had, to have, you had to have a specific, at the time, high tech box at either end of the connection. And then you'd have to leave it on all night or something for the, <laughs> for the, for stuff to come, come through in high fidelity. Wow. Um, which, That's um, great. It was just the beginning of that whole yeah. file trans point to point sure, file transfer sure. thing, um, but uh, yeah, uh, I, okay. I heard that rec- I heard that record again actually just uh, a few months ago, and, and it's good. I like yeah, it. it does. It holds up. Um, okay, I wanted to ask you about Jewels and the Polar Bears. I discovered them while getting ready to talk to you. I I really really love the Got No Breeding album and uh, following every finger.
you have some really tasty keyboards on that song. I like that a lot. Oh, one, one question I had for you is the what is it with bands of that era uh, ha- posing shirtless on their album covers? Because there's oh, bad for business and the, the bad for business. <laughs> yes, and there's also around that time Orleans and uh, Pablo Cruz. All you guys, you know, you hairy guys with long hair and beards and stuff. Always want to take your shirts off on uh, album covers. What? Why? <laughs> well, I we didn't want to. You, you, all right. Okay. So, so we made that. We made the um, Jules and I have both been in other bands in L.A. Um, and then we, when we put the jewel, the polar bears together, we got signed pretty much right off the bat to Columbia. This is back when you just thought you would get signed. You, you know what sure. I mean? It's like <laughs> just, yeah. it's been quite a while since that was the case. Um, and we had an album budget touring budget up and but and also they let us produce the records you know which was a real stretch peter philbin at columbia uh, was responsible for that the same guy who made sure bruce springsteen get, didn't get dropped after his first album tanked you know he'd like to do with that for going. him anyway we um did that we did the second one called fanatics mm-hmm. and we were really kind of Push, pushing people's sensibilities, you know, because Jules writes really, really intricate, um, not intricate, not the word for it, but um, quite dense lyrics with, in, in my mind. He's a fantastic you know, like, songwriter. Like, like, like really, really good content and his wordplay and da-da-da-da-da. His voice is a bit of an acquired taste. I mean, it's not like we were going to burn up AM radio, but the record company knew that. Um, and then uh, when Phonetics, yeah, I say that because on Phonetics, um, we printed all the lyrics, but we printed them phonetically. Um, <laughs> it was that kind of operation. Let's put it yes. that way. Um, and um, and we were making, and we we were making, we made those. Um, we made one of the second number Clover Studios. With we were producing. It's um, it was a studio where Springsteen was was where because Chuck Plotkin owned it, mm. and Toby Scott, Toby Scott, who engineered our second and third albums, was. Um, was Springsteen's engineer as well. So Bruce was around the studio a few times and he came in and traded some more stories and stuff. And he was a very cool guy. He was around the darkness at the edge of town period. I think. Mm-hmm. But then we were, we were on the verge of getting dropped after the second album. Um, but Jules had a really good bunch of songs and, and the label said, well, you can, you can, you can make another album, but you need someone in there with you as, as at least an executive producer. So Chuck Plotkin, who really liked the band, who was, who was having all these hits with with, um, Springsteen said, I'll do it. And, and so he kind of oversaw it. And, um, and I think that's personally my favorite record, um, but um, song for song, anyway, in love with the ballet, I think still one of our best Good ones. One. But
but when we <clears throat> but the label wasn't happy the label didn't want to put it out when it was finished um but they wanted to follow through with the whole thing with the artwork they wanted to just make sure there's a package there so that if they if they made the uh if they if they finally pulled the trigger that it'd be ready to go even if whatever you know and and so we did this photo session and and we were just kind of standing there and we were really disgruntled at the time with the label but you know we didn't we barely in fact the drummer david bb was an hour late for the photo session for no particular reason other than to make a statement yeah and, and uh, so we're there and we we i forget what we were wearing and and they were trying different stuff and and jules had this idea of like us wearing these kind of african sort of uh, neck <laughs> neck decorations yeah these white guys dressing up like and these are from the people who made fun of paul simon for you know like standing this white small white jewish guy with the back line of like right. all these africans um but here we were you know doing this yeah and so in bb the drummer just hated the idea the whole thing he just hated the whole thing and and he took his shirt off and so then we all took our shirts off thinking well this will be the end of the photo session you know but of course sure enough that that was <laughs> that was the picture that they used. it wasn't like we were going in there to show off our um uh -huh. immaculate, immaculate physiques you know driving, <laughs> was, driving driving the girls wild listening to the polar yeah, bears you guys in the late 70s you just uh that was a common <laughs> thing for you guys slightly, slightly different landscape yeah 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 Walter Egan has been on here a couple of times. I've met him. Um, Walter. <laughs> you know, we're friendly as much as people are on social media these days and stuff. Mm -hmm. I reached out to him to tell him I was talking with you, and he just told me to tell you hello. You guys know each other from a band called Southpaw, I guess, that was opening. Or no, he was in Southpaw. Yeah, uh, there was, yeah, there was a there was a kind of a hotbed of talent happening in, in one 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 circle in LA and yeah out of out of that band uh and an adjacent band was it not so yeah came uh, uh walter egan jack temption who went on to write peaceful easy feeling for the eagles and already gone uh jewels steve diamond um who he and i are still very close friends he lives in in nashville and he's a grammy winning grammy winning multiple grammy winning songwriter myself uh walter um, there was somebody else too who um greg lease you, you know who's yeah. really 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 talented um pedal steel player who's played with all the greats now anyway all of in that little thing we were all drinking at the troubadour bar as you do um as you did and and they were um and then we kind of splintered off into these different factions and yeah. and i ended up with the polar bears there was this band called the funky kings for a while with jack temption and jewel shear mm -hmm. under the same hood and, and you then, played um, on magnet and steel Right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, and then so Tom Moncrief, who um, who was a guitar player, wasn't in that particular circle, but we we hit it off at, at the Jupiter Bar. He was living at that time was with Lindsey Buckingham, who just broken up with Stevie Nicks. He was in the middle of the whole fleet with Mac. And they were he was good friends with Lindsey. And he said, uh, "Well, well you, you you know you know Walter, right? You know me. I'm going to play guitar in his band. You should come to rehearsals. He's looking for some stuff. He's going he's getting signed." like everyone else i think he was sent to columbia too so i went and and everyone hit it off and so i kind of joined that band this was before the just before the polar bears yeah so then he got signed and lindsey and stevie um although lindsey did the heavy lifting um uh, produced his his first album is his um the walt the walter Regan, and i played i you know i played keyboards on it including toy piano and magnet and steel that So you ought to know 
Children's piano that Lindsay mm-hmm. came into the studio one day with this bag and said, uh, Yeah, look, can, can we try this on a couple of things? And, and he picked it up at passing a garage sale on the way to the studio. And it was a uh, yeah, classic toy piano uh, with a classic toy piano sound. And so I tried a few ideas and and I came up with a thing. I don't know if you can recall in the chorus, but it's like a dee 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 dee, mm-hmm. like a like a something a child would play on a child's piano. That was mm-hmm. my idea. Wow, <laughs> that's incredible. And it kind of worked. And then and then we went on the road, and and this was when going on the road was really going on the road. You know, <laughs> we, had, mm-hmm. we had tour support, um, and it was just I don't want to say it was out of control. I mean, we you know we but but we were. Um, it was in those days of swingos in Cleveland and, you know, like, like real touring stuff, you know, like, yeah. proper, you know, yeah. storied, storied tor- touring. Um, and we, uh, yeah, we did a big tour and, and we, and I was, I couldn't, I was probably 23, I don't know, 23 <laughs> or something like that. And, and we were playing 10, 10, 15,000 seaters because we were opening for, it was a double bill of heart and foreigner. Oh, who were wow. both, both at the top of their hit making game around that time. Yeah. So it was a big, big tour. And I was just shitting myself, you know. I mean, I was I'd been playing in these little, I'd be playing at the, the the whiskey was a big night for me yeah, in LA, you know, right. in, you know, as a player. Um, but I've been playing in cover bands and playing, you know, you know what I mean? So and so suddenly, like um six months after my last cover band gig, I'm I'm you know, like playing, <laughs> playing at Madison Square Garden or something, you know. And so so it was I don't think we did that place, but you know, that's scale yeah and, sure um, it was real trial by fire that um, is wild and, those old and days just going out there every night just hoping i wouldn't fuck up you know uh, yeah because some some of the stuff i'd done in the studio i was capable of playing but um but but it was a new experience playing it in front of a lot of yeah. people and also a lot of people who weren't there to see us you know yeah they were, true true um and so anyway yeah it was, um, it well, was an interesting time i bet those old days um, the, the polar bears toured a lot as well. Yeah, yeah. They, I uh, I was really pleasantly surprised by that uh, by discovering them. I, I've always had a lot of respect for Jewel Shear as a songwriter. I hadn't name. I didn't know about the I hadn't listened to the polar bears before, but I yeah. loved it. We were learning how to be producers while we were producing ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> which which a guitar player Richard Bedice, who was making the second second album, he said, uh, "Do you think we should ever produce her?" <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Jules, but Jules and I, we were we were so full of ourselves. I mean, not in an arrogant way, just in a well, you're young way. and you're in a, optimistic yeah, and, chip, yeah, chip, chip, and yeah, got it all figured out. Our, big chip on our shoulder, you know. Sure. But yeah, the the polar bears did a lot of. In fact, the polar bears touring. Um, was um, I don't know if you've come across this or I've, we've talked about, but the um, my start as a solo producer really 
had a lot to do with Peter Gabriel. And he invited us to open, if not his first, certainly maybe at most his second U.S. solo tour after leaving Genesis, when he was playing SUNY colleges in upstate New York and stuff, you know, when he was playing small places. And we went to see him when we met him, the polar bear, me and Jules, we went to see him at the Roxy Club in, in L.A. on the Strip, and which is about a... 350 400 seater and stuff and so peter hadn't really <clears throat> taken off yet um mm -hmm. and and we uh, and the polar bear is open for for peter all over the place we did two tours um and we and we came over to england on the back of that as well did old gray whistle tests and a couple of things and and um and peter and i stayed in touch <clears throat> and it was for me sending him some uh, some home demos i was doing in boston at the time when home recording was new. Um, and then, um, yeah, one thing led to another and his label started to ask me to do some things. And that's how it all started really was Peter's, uh, the Peter connection. Didn't you produce the Barry Williams show off of the up album? I think so. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, okay. That's I? an odd. I know I, I know I did. Um, the one, the one that I go back to the, that I'm um, quite proud of as a record is uh, I Grieve, um, oh. that, that one. think um nice. yeah this one of my favorite things on the album and that was that was one that we did together oh yeah, yeah. I, I, I like that a lot yeah you know because for years and years we stayed in touch and and um when i was when i was in england when i when i moved to england i would come out and hang out and when when you bought reworld studios i was involved in all that it well, not, not involved but i was on part of the, the steering committee for what sort of thing it was going to be and mm -hmm. um and then there were circumstantially you know i just started doing a few things with them a couple of movie things and then i did a couple of things on the up album a couple of movie things and um and then the big blue ball project um mm. which takes us into the 2000s but that, yeah, was quite an, yeah. that was quite an adventure as well My, i had jerry Murata on here uh, a couple of years ago and he painted a very vivid picture of what it's like working with peter which is that <laughs> peter is kind of a genius when it comes to the music but he puts off having to write lyrics as long as he possibly can. And if there's anything he can do to kind of tinker in the studio or procrastinate or whatever, he'll do it. And or that's it, one or, of the or, reasons why there's not more Peter Gabriel music out yeah, there. Yeah, or, or do a charity function or, yes. or give, give a talk. And yeah, yeah. Well, that yeah, that's true. Um, there's um, maybe Jerry said this is quite a well-known story when when he was doing the um, the stuff with uh, Daniel Lenoir. Um, 
which is some of the best, you know, and certainly, well, um, you know, big time and sledgehammer, yeah. you know, that period. That, um, and they were in, in the Netherlands, I think. They weren't at Peter's place because uh, he, he had a place a couple of valleys over in, um, in, the, in that part of England, Wiltshire area, mm -hmm. uh, before he built Real World and you know, another thing like in a stone barn but they were someplace else though and uh, and daniel was getting so fed up with with every day peter not having done any work on lyrics that he um he physically nailed his door shut to the cottage he was staying in <laughs> this is a true story peter's peter's corroborated this and, and peter wasn't happy i mean like like he really wasn't happy but it did it did kind of shake things up a bit to the point <laughs> to the point where, where where the lyrics suddenly started getting i went through a a similar thing with um, with Barney in New Order when we were doing True Faith. substancy at that time you know and i can't say i was i wasn't in that club but we had a hard and fast deadline for this um mm -hmm. you know back in the indie days you know you couldn't fuck around with deadlines you know mm -hmm. it, and and um and we had everything on uh, on true faith except uh, a complete lyric and and um and he i just wanted him to stay in his flat over in portobello where he wasn't just right and right and right to the point where i started canceling cars for him you know i had the i had the car company <clears throat> go through me because because the fair enough the you know the the record budget was paying for the car services and, mm -hmm. and so i said no no cars to anywhere unless um unless i clear it and so i stopped clearing barney's <laughs> and for two or three days he was basically stuck at his place and sure enough there comes the lyrics you know yeah yeah right on let's talk about new order and republic now i meant to look this up before we hopped on and i can't i so my memory is a little vague on this i read peter hook's book um about the new era or the new order era a couple of mm -hmm. years ago and if i remember correctly does he have some i think he has some issues with the republic album and maybe even working with you specifically, I don't hope I'm not bringing up dirty laundry here. I have no idea. No, but no. Was that an unpleasant not, experience? I have some issues with the Republic album. Um, and he was, <laughs> he was one of the issues. Um, okay. Not, not him. It was very highly circumstantial. Um, you know, I, you know, I had, I had, had really good successful experiences with them up up through and including the football record. Um, and, and then, uh, was Republic 93, 94, I think um, so. 94 probably. And they had started it, but it wasn't work. wasn't really working out. And Tony, and Tony Wilson called me up and said, uh, 
you know, we're out at Real World Studios. We got all this time. Um, it's not, you know, it's not working out with so and so. How would you feel about? It? I don't know. And I loved Tony, and and uh, I said, well, I'll, I'll go out there and, and see see what they got, you know. And and so I did, and uh, it was nice to see each other. Had a nice time on a personal level, and um, and I heard what they had, and they definitely had some stuff, but not much really. Um, and uh, <clears throat> so I said, okay, let's go. And they had all this time booked. And um, and I was about to do something, and I I moved it around so I could go out there and do this. And so so I moved out to real world. We were all just living there as residential place, you know. And so the first thing I did was I, <clears throat> I came to grips with what they had already. One of them was uh, regret. I thought was a real item and yeah. so we we did some work on that um but then we started to kind of work down the list and there wasn't a lot of great stuff there was two or three other things that i thought should go the distance but but i thought there should be um more writing and 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 i and i had talks with them individually um and and just tried to see just get a feel for where things were at because i knew through tony um, and also through Rob Gretton that that things financially were going poorly in um, in Manchester, you know, with the hacienda and the dry bar, um, they were losing money. Um, the thing at the hacienda was changing. There was some gang action there, and someone got caught with a gun. And you, you know, I mean, you know, just that whole, yeah, like the thing that happened, you know, around the turn of that decade, you know, where where ecstasy lit everyone up, including myself. Um, and, and during all those great days, I mean, that was all starting to go a bit uh, altamont. <laughs> <Yep. laughs> you, know, you, know, you know, the summer of love was ending um, or, or turning into rage. You know, it, it, it morphed into other things that weren't bad, you know, but, but that particular scene was changing. I wanted them to get into a room together and be new order and jam because that was always big, you know, going back to the, uh, to the joy division days that was part of how they operated that was part of part of the how they got some air under their wings for new song ideas and stuff and Stephen and jillian were up for it um hooky wasn't um and barney wasn't there was this thing going on well i'll say it you, you know there were there were some things that have been brewing for a while that i'd seen in bands before where bands split the publishing evenly um as a band in the band spirit um, um and then 
the years go by, the money comes in, and the primary songwriters start to feel maybe like they should be getting a more primary share of the publishing. Because um, it's real money, you know, and yeah. people get to a certain point in their lives that suddenly you're not kids, you know, like hanging out at the pub anymore. You have houses and kids yeah. and stuff, you know. So fair enough, you know, I'm not, not saying it's inappropriate, but it was happening to them. And, and uh, particularly between um, Barney and Hookie. And basically, I couldn't get them in the same room together, uh, barely to listen to playbacks, let alone create anything. And so when I listen to that album now, I hear too much of me, too oh, much really? of myself. Because I was perfectly capable of making a record and every Barney come in and sing on stuff. And, and I was doing more writing than I, not that I, I can't say not that I would have liked, because, you know, because I co-wrote, uh, true faith in 1963 and and you, you know what i mean I, you know part of my relationship with them had been i would kind of join the band you know i mean yeah you, know, which, you which have literal nice. co-writing credits on true faith in 1963 yeah yeah oh I yeah have no, I, I, okay. I, I have an equal share in, in, oh, in, in the in the masters and the, the publishing um, you know that that's just that's just the way we did it i, I would just kind of join the band um not for every song across an album you know but um but on 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 Republic, um, I co-wrote some of um, uh, Regret, and it was two, two or three other ones. But a couple of them, I ended, I've ended up writing more. You know, we, you know, we had, we, we had to, we had to make an album. You know, Tony, Tony, for the, for them financially, you know, to get their completion advances. Um, everyone was terrified that this thing would stop and maybe not start again ever, you know, this album. So there was a, there was a big push for it to be completed. Um, and I think in an ideal world that maybe it would have stopped resolved some of the other problems and then gone back in for another month and, and maybe with a couple of new songs, but that wasn't possible, you know, so I think we were really, really lucky to come out of it with, um, with regret. Um, I, I agree. Because yeah. that, that ended up, and that ended up being, their biggest album in America. I mean, I, I don't know. So it, it certainly did well in America, and, yeah. and they uh, and they were touring and stuff. Although at that time, Barney was only agreeing to do like four dates per tour. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah it wasn't yeah. really his his thing. But now, of course, you know they go touring all the time. Yeah, I um, I saw New Order, and then I saw Peter Hooky by himself within just a few months of each other, and mm. a very different vibe on those shows, but. I love them yeah, both sure. equally. Yeah, I yeah. love that band. It's a shame. I wish they could, you know, figure figure out this divorce. It's unfortunate. Yeah, so it's funny. It's a funny thing. Um, you know, I, I I I'm in touch a little bit with Jillian, and I set up some some good friends of mine um, with some backstage passes to go see, to go well New Order and uh, this is in Barcelona. They live in Barcelona um, when New Order played, but also when Hooky was in town playing. And and they and they went and um, they're Russians friends of mine and and um, Igor said to Hookie uh, said uh, oh you know we've been doing some work with Stephen Hagen and uh, <laughs> he said that Hookie had this kind of sheepish look on his face and and he just thought well say hi to him for me and and uh, I hope he hasn't read my book <laughs> <laughs> yeah I I remember because you're a legend was, to me and I remember I he hearing was, him I don't know. <laughs> Just sound as if he had some issues, some lingering yeah, issues with you. Yeah, well, I, I think, I, and without stirring anything, I think, 
<clears throat> there are other people in, in and around the New Order camp who uh, maybe have some some issues with, hmm. with 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 Peter, you know, and and yeah. and, and I, for me personally, there's there's no bad blood, and 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 there are people who have said much worse things about me than he did, and <laughs> and his in his main thing seemed to be, and I didn't read it in detail. I had a couple of things quoted to me on the phone um, about money, you, you know, yeah. uh, and one one thing was that at that time, um, <clears throat> money was just a paramount in all their minds. I mean, they were getting phone calls, you know, the afternoon before a vocal session saying they were broke. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? And, and yeah. they were taking bags full of cash from the dry bar to the hacienda to keep the doors open. And it was really bad. It yeah. was really, really bad. It was. And and um, and uh, Rob Gretton would come down and hang out at this. I loved Rob. would come down to the studio, um, you know, like trying to uh, preserve the, the spirit of the culture and stuff like that, but just faced with the, the reality that, that it was just going Not horribly gonna, wrong. Yeah. And, we were trying to, and we were trying to make a record at the same time. Okay. It's a lovely day here in Paris. <laughs> it's always a lovely day. Paris is my favorite city in the world, I think. Um, yeah, me me too, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I really, really uh, feel fortunate to have been a part of it. I mean, I, I got I my second place now, but I got my first place um, ooh, 22 years ago, something like that. Good so I, I know I know my way around town. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. When I when I told you I wanted to talk about James's Whiplash album, okay. your re- reaction was kind of like, "Oh boy, what story?" First of all, how was it working with Edo? Had you done that before, and um, no. uh, or did you trade off doing tracks or what? Well, yeah, the story that made me say, "Oh Lordy, I'm not sure if I should <laughs> okay. contact my libel lawyers." Kind of thing. <laughs> but, I mean, it's just so it doesn't. Well, I can tell you, he might laugh if he, I don't know if you'll ever even hear that. But okay. Um, but, you know, um, so I'd, um, I'd always really rated, you know, um, and I, I like some of his, some of his ambient stuff and the Bowie stuff and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, who doesn't like, you know, and, and so I, uh, I was really looking forward to meeting him. And I went, <clears throat> when, when this all came up and the band, the, my name came up with the band, but Eno had done the Brian had done the, the previous album, which had which uh, you know did, did quite well. It was the one with Sit Down on it, I think, and Laid, great album. Laid, yeah, that, yeah, that's right. And um, and so um, my name came up, and I think I don't know what the behind the scenes conversations was, but I think Brian wanted to meet me before he would agree to the co production. But at the same time, Brian was quite busy, and I think he was. He was very happy with the, the concept of having a co-producer. Um, and so I went to meet him in a studio where he was working. And <clears throat> then I went over to his place. We went out to dinner. And we got along great. And, um, and we still do. I mean, I've, I've seen him for a couple of years. But, you know, last time we ran into each other, it was a very nice conversation. And and uh, and so, we, yeah, okay, let's do it. And so we went we went into Rack Studios uh, with the band. And particularly at that time, they're a real band. I mean, they really play together. You know, that was it in some ways reminded me of the polar bears days. You know, I mean, they just they get into a room and it all just starts to happen. And you know, you just want to hit record immediately. And so, but we were we were routining stuff and going through structural ideas. And and Brian was there all day, every day with me for like ten days, maybe or something like that. And we we really thought we had pretty much what we needed to start recording, which meant that I was going to start recording. <laughs> and so we, and so we went out to real world and um, once again, took up, took up camp there and, and we were just staying there all the time. Um, and we started recording and in, in the, um, in the big room at real world, you can set up 
lots of different ways, but but I had the band set up live on all around the periphery and in the in the level up behind the, the the console and the desk and everything. And in the back, there's an isolation booth that opens onto the main room, and that's where I had the drums. So we were basically all set up in the recording studio, and that's how we recorded all the backing tracks that way. Um, and Brian would come out, although there was a, there's a cottage where. Um, where a couple of them had um, a little rig set up working on ideas, keyboards, programming stuff and things like that going on at the same time. And Brian would come out usually on a, on a Friday and listen to what had been going on, have a few drinks. And you, know, one thing about Brian is he's a very funny guy. Um, <laughs> and, and, and he, you know, people think of him as just being kind of this sort of austere po-faced kind of over intellectual kind of, but um, Brian can be a lot of fun. And, and so he would come out and then, and then he'd usually come out Friday and go back Saturday. And this went on for four or six weeks, something like that. And he would come out and, stir things up a bit and ask why we hadn't done that or suggested mm-hmm. tempo changes late in the ball game. I was like, Kevin, why didn't you, why didn't we talk about this at rack and that sort of thing. But he and I, throughout, throughout the process, we, 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 we get along great. And, and, um, and he was really happy with what was going on, except um, that track, um, uh, she's a star, mm-hmm. you know, the one that, that was, was the first, the- that was the single off of it, the big song. It was just me and him actually sitting in the studio and and uh, and i played him and it was uh we hadn't even really started mixing but i kind of mix as i go along anyway so it sounded like it sounded like what it was you know and mm-hmm. and he said you know i think this could be a hit and and i said yeah and and i could tell by the way he was saying it there was going, going to be a but after it and <laughs> he said but i think this could be the wrong kind of hit for them <laughs> Oh. And, uh, and I, I knew what he meant, uh-huh. but there was a momentum behind this in, in the, uh, in the band. And, uh, but we had been listening to it just the day before and saying, this is going to, this is just going to be a hit, isn't it? And, 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 uh, and, and the, uh, the, the bass player, I'm forgetting their names now. Can you I, I, I don't remember all the guys' names either. 
One of them said to me, um, after they listened to it, the first thing I said, he put his hand on my shoulder, he said, I'm going to buy my daughter a pony. <laughs> <laughs> With the success of this hit, she's a star. Exactly. I'm going to buy my daughter this, a pony. On the back of this, I'm buying my daughter a pony. That is um, great. And, and, so, and so when I sat down with Brian, like I said, there was sort of the weight of the band opinion like not behind me. I mean, you know, I mean, we, we were just all in that together and we all agreed that it was cool and we liked it. Um, and it's not that Brian didn't like it, but he was in some ways uh, fulfilling his, the role he assumed in the project, you know, the kind of Godfather, you know, the sort of yeah. the one, the one to step back when we were all in the middle of it and make some observations. And, and that was one. Um, yeah. Like that. I love it. And then, uh, I, and then, I talked and to Tim a few months ago and, he was such a sweet guy, um, but very intense. And and the way he would describe the way that they would come about finding their songs through just hours and hours and hours of jamming mm -hmm. and yeah, yeah, you know, the, which, this like which, other which, layer of consciousness and getting to that place and that's where the music is and stuff. It's very intense for them. Okay, let me ask you. I'm really interested in the uh, Robert Palmer album "Honey" that you worked on. just baffled at who not that this is a bad thing who thought nuno betancourt needed to collaborate with robert at that time there it's just two things that you would not put together naturally <laughs> nuno betancourt is uh, the guitarist for the band extreme and he's oh, okay. this really kind of he's a, one of the best guitarists ever but very technical very yeah, like yeah, yeah. heavy metally and mixed with bach or something like that you know yeah, I yeah I've just the, I wasn't making the name connection. Um, aside, I put the rhythm section together for that um, with um, with guy guy proud again and um, uh -huh. and a Andy Duncan on drums. Um, but the others were, oh, and I play keyboards. But the others were from uh, uh, Robert's Robert's pool of friends and people he wanted to work with. So I was just rolling with it, you know. Um, Robert was a wonderful guy. You know, we became quite good friends. I used to go spend Christmas there with him in Lugano sometimes, you know. Really? And um, yeah, it was sad when he moved yeah. on. But but he um yeah, he was wonderful to work with and and um and just great at home. But he 
but he had the, <clears throat> that thing all the way to the end um, of the kind of, not the rock and roll lifestyle. I mean, he was dedicated to his long-term girlfriend, Mary, and although he had tricky relationships with his kids and his ex-wife, but, but he, but he was very, very, very good to people, but he, um, he really liked to tie one on, you know, and, and, and he always just allowed himself to do that. And as part of the being a rock and roll singer thing from his generation, you know, um, all the way going all the way back to the compass point days. I mean, he was, he was, that was just him, you know, and we had a fantastic time on the back of that because I can, I can easily go there myself, you know? And so, and so that was all really fun. And we had some great experiences together and in in the, um, in the studio itself, he wouldn't do any, it was strictly recreational. He wouldn't, he wouldn't maybe a glass of wine, but he wouldn't um, get high in the studio. And we, um, the, the one, the one thing that he wasn't really used to that I have always done is, uh, get a lot of vocal takes, you, you know, cause I like, I like to go for nuance and when I'm assembling stuff and, and he got it, he was fine with it. And he was, he was very patient about it, but, but he would do this thing where, um, well, we get to take three, four or five. Okay. He could say, okay, just, just give me a minute. <clears throat> and he'd ask for a certain light to be turned on or off, you know, just something change something about the lights and, um, but not in a Susie kind of way, but just, yeah. in a, you know, just, just as a technical thing. And so he closed his eyes and he'd do another cool vocal take, you know? And, mm-hmm. and then I asked him about that. I said, well, you know, what's going on there? He said, he said, Oh, you know, when, when I have to do vocal, you know, repeat, repeat vocal takes, um, I, each time I, I imagine that I'm in a different club and I'm picturing the girl that I'm singing to sitting at the table in the club. And, um, and, and then he, he holds that in his mind for the, for that whole performance, which I thought was a very cool thing. And, and I've actually suggested that to some other people over the years afterwards, you know, so when you get to take six, I say, okay, just pretend, you know, blah, 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 you inspired this girl that, you know, and there's something to it, you know, and it, and it certainly yeah. worked, certainly worked for him. That a bit, a bit of a bit of internal theater, you know? Yeah. Um, and it was great and hanging out with Robert um, in like out there in the world that, you know, we would go to this, this club in, uh, in, uh, in, in London that he, <clears throat> he was good friends with a Japanese woman. He ran as in Mayfair and we'd go and have dinner and then we'd, it's, we'd all start getting a bit high and his party trick <laughs> would be that, that I, that I saw happen in Milan, Paris and London and, and also in Madrid one time um, was that he, Having having a great evening, fun with his friends, you know, stuff like that. Is that when when the karaoke would start, he'd let it all settle in for about a half an hour, and, and then he'd get up and do karaoke to uh, "Addicted to Love." Really? And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly, all these people we'd be tucked away in some corner, and suddenly Robert Palmer is singing "Addicted to Love" in the middle of this club, and he just loved it, and everyone else loved it. So, That's you know incredible. What I mean? It was really really fun, but but moving around with him. Moving. I mean, I would meet him in various places, you know, yeah. we'd work, work together, but, but road managers, tour, tour managers knew Robert's reputation. And like, uh, if, um, Duran Duran was going to be playing in Madrid, um, you know, he would tell the band, Robert's going to be here tonight. You're going to be back at the hotel by midnight, or else there's going to be a big problem. You, you know, I mean, because, because, because when when Robert ended up backstage with some people he knew, and you know, he he had the yeah. power power station connection, sure, and all that stuff, of course. You know? And these guys were trying to keep the tour on the rails, and and yeah. the, and they were serious. You know, I mean, you know, if Robert's going to be around, you know, I'm really really watching the situation. You know, because he would he would tend to get a little um, rock and roll, shall we say? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I uh, I love him, and I've talked to <clears throat> I talk about him with everyone I can. I had Phil Brown on here earlier this year, and he wrote a whole book, parts of well, which I, are about Robert. I've, I've you know I've, someone just passed that book along to me. I said the one. Uh, uh, are we still rolling? Is that what? It's yes, called? that's it. Yeah. Um, I haven't yeah. read it yet. It's, it's at home though. Um, but I um, like it a lot. Um, I'm a big Talk Talk fan, and Phil did a lot of work in Talk Talk too. And you know, we, Phil and I crossed paths a couple of times in the in the late '80s, and I think I think he engineered something that I worked on, or helped me, mm. or I I did a radio mix of something. I don't know what it was, but I mean, we it was a nice encounter, whatever it was, but we never really settled in and did a series of things together. Yeah, but yeah, I think I think he's really really good. So so, oh, and did you bring up Robert to uh, to Guy? I did. Yeah. And he said similar things. Everybody does. He's a total gentleman, wonderful to have around, great musician, but love Mm -hmm. to party. And it ultimately kind of did him in. You know, and and uh, and 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 a guy did did some because he used guy on uh, some other things after after uh, I worked with him, and so yeah, guy did even even more of a tour of duty. But but yeah, with Robert, you know, when he you probably know the story, but he. Right before he died, uh, he he had come to England to his long long time uh, Harley Street um, GP to have uh, his biannual uh, f- physical, and I had talked to him after that, and and because he was in town, but we couldn't. I, w- I wasn't. I wasn't there. I, I was in Woodstock. I don't know what the story was, but but um, but he um, yeah, he said yeah, I passed with flying colors. You know, it was great. You know, everything. He says I got the heart of a thirty year old ball and stuff. You know, and so. And so then, in typical Robert fashion, he he uh, he went to uh, to Paris, feeling indestructible, mm. and um, and and went a little too far one night. Yeah, you know? and, yeah. Uh, and it was really, yeah, it was really sad. Very it's sad. a shame. Um, okay, we should talk about the Pet Shop Boys. You did the well. You've done most of their albums, but Very is the one that I wanted to talk about. Yeah, I wouldn't say most, but you know, but yeah, we've we've certainly done a lot of them, yeah. right? What was the? How were they different? by the time you came around to do very than they were at the beginning with please, because they had become huge in that time, largely thanks to you. I mean, their fantastic musicianship mixed with your production makes them superstars. Deservedly. So those songs are eternal. They deserve to be. And very is a, is another one kind of in the line of great albums they were making at the time. How were they different to work with at that point? Um, well, they had, they had become producers. Um, yeah. You, you know, cause when we first started working together, they had really good instincts, both coming from slightly different directions, which has always been part of their strength, but they had become proper record producers, you know? And, and so, and so when I was asked, um, Neil asked me to come on board for that day, they, and I don't really remember what the reasoning was. I, mean, I think just because it'd be fun to work together again or something, you know, but, yeah. but, the, but they had done quite a lot of the heavy lifting already. Not, not everything, certainly not everything, but, but I came in as sort of a co-producer, additional production mixer kind of guy. And, and I know that we, we, we did all the, all the lead vocals together. Neil, Neil always liked working with me as a vocal producer kind of guy. And all those things like go west, and all, you know, they you know they'd already recorded the Glee Club, you know, that the, they'd done, all, you know, what I mean, those yeah. several elements that were in in place, and we turned it into an album um, together, you know, and, and that was also a rock, I think. And then after that, yeah, I did uh, the elect- stuff with electronic. Um, yes, you know, I did some of that stuff with Johnny, uh, Johnny Marr, and and uh, and Neil. I remember Neil came to Paris when I was stationed here doing 
some record I couldn't really break away from, but he he flew over and and we mixed that track Disappointed. Great at song. A at a studio here in Paris. And I yeah. added a couple of things, I think. Yeah, I think he might have re redone some of the vocals with me. I did the album for their stage musical "Closer to Heaven," mm, um, yes, which, which was in two thousand one or something like that, which I really, really liked. And you know, it and and that was with the um, Major League Western guy who we all knew his name, short, not attractive. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber. Thank you. Um, so then they were doing it for Andrew Lloyd Webber's company, and I got to meet all them and. And I felt like it was part of something, and I helped design the 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 um, the sound for the stage presentation. And they were in a um, kind of an off Broadway, smaller venue in the in the West End. Um, but it was really well received. And and I remember on opening night, um, Elton John came down, and you know just the, sort of some of the various in pop intelligentsia around town and it was really fun really good and um and i made an album with the uh, the original cast which was kind of being done in and around rehearsals and stuff like that and then it opened and and it, it was uh had had been received so well received that they were already making plans to take a break but move it into a proper theater um, in the west end and uh, angela weber came down one night and made a few suggestions but he was really happy and so they really felt like they had, had something on their hands you know um and then 9 11 happened oh. and um and the tourist trade um completely collapsed um and uh, and i and i remember uh, talking to neil a, a few a few days later and we were talking about what a nightmare it was and all that stuff and and um, and neil says but you know um when i <laughs> When I when I saw the when I saw the the plane crash into the second tower, the first thing that crossed my mind was there goes closer to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> That's dark, but it's funny. <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> oh wow. That's great. Yeah. Um, um so yeah. I uh Mark from 80sography, who you were just on, I told him that he and I I told him that we know each other and I told him I was going to be talking to you too. He said he meant to ask you something and he forgot. And he was curious if, uh, when it came to Pet Shop Boys and Erasure, probably specifically in the eighties, but anytime was he, were you tougher on rejecting material and knowing what was good and what didn't make the grade? 
for instance, like the Innocents has a, one of the, I think that's their pinnacle, if you ask me, and it's one of the best mm. synth pop albums ever. And, uh, but it's got a lot of songs on it, all of which are fantastic. And he wanted, I mean, I, like, was there tough quality control? Did they come with 25 songs and you had to pare it down? What was that like? Well, you, well, you know, you know, Vince, <clears throat> Vince and Andy together, you, you know, they're, um, I can. I have to honestly say that I, I don't have a vivid. I, I mean, I I can be very very tough on material, um, but but their their standards coming in were high to a point. And the same goes for the Pet Shop Boys. That um, that I, I I do. I, I mean, there were there were some things like you know, like It's a Sin was available for the first Pet Shop Boys album, but oh. um, but I, I wasn't that keen. And Neil said, oh, "Okay, yeah, maybe we'll do it next time." And then, and then it was, then it came up again when we when we started actually, and and, and that, um, and then it made it and became a hit. Of course, you know, mm-hmm. just to prove I'm not right all the time. <laughs> and and um, it was just something about it. I don't, I don't know. It didn't seem to fit in to me with that first time, you know. But, but, um, but that was one of the rare cases where I've passed on something that went on to be successful. I have to say that. Yeah. But I don't really have much to comment on that that specific question between those two acts because. Okay. Um, because yeah, you know they, they're you know those two acts in particular, keeping the bar raised high com- coming in, and also yeah. you've mentioned two acts where there, it's not like a band who had some success and then they start touring, and well, for instance, um, New Order and the Technique album, um, you know where where you know when they began the Technique album, it was kind of an extension of some touring, and it ended up being at least attempted in Ibiza and it yeah. was party central. And, and, you know, so then someone really has to keep an eye on the material, yeah. you know, so that, so they're not just kind of working to, with numbers, you know, to fill up the Good space, point. you know, but yes, um, not, not the new, new order or, or sloppy that way. I don't mean to no. apply that, you know, but, but, but it's a different thing when in the, the, the synth pop duo, just, yeah. it's just a bit more sane. <laughs> I get it. I get it. You know what I mean? The more yeah. focused. Yeah. Better word I believe it. it. Um, Okay, I want to ask you about AHA's lifelines. Hmm. Um, I love AHA. And yeah, we, exactly. unfortunately, in the States, know them mainly for one song, maybe one other, maybe one more after sure. that. And sure. it's tragic because I think they're a really talented, wonderful band. And um, Lifelines, I don't know if that even got released in the States. If it did, it barely trickled out. Time to know how it 
But it's a very ambitious record. They're changing up their sound. It's not as synth poppy. Well, they they were they were only really synth poppy for like one or two albums. They got past that pretty quickly. What was it yeah. like working with them on that? Well, even on the first album, "Sun Always Shines on TV" is a rock record, as far as it I'm is, concerned. and it's you know? that's a masterpiece of production. That's, fant- that's fantastic. You know, it's I so cinematic them, and epic and gorgeous. It's a masterpiece. I saw them at uh, at the Albert Hall just a couple of two and a half, three, like three years ago now, and uh, we hadn't seen each other for ages, and it was really fun getting together. Um, but um, you know, they played that whole first album from top to bottom live oh. and and um, with the most amazing LED um, project, well, it's not projections, like, you know, they're basically surrounded by this wall from floor to ceiling at the Albert Hall of some stunning visuals. That's a different story. I talked to the guy who did it afterwards, but wow. because, you know, they're, they're not the most um, dynamic stage presences. You know, to, <laughs> yeah. So to have all, have, have this stunning stuff going on behind them, it was really, it was really quite an evening, uh, but, but they, um, yeah, they started. So they did that album, Atari. And so, so Morton comes out. The first song they're doing on a big night in a sold out Albert Hall was um, Take On Me mm-hmm. with these kind of stratospheric vocal passages and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he just owned it. And, it, and they, they, they did everything in the original key. And Morton's always oh. really taking, Morton's always really taking care of himself, you know. And, yeah. and I, and I went back, I spent some time with him afterwards, um, a bit of a reunion. And, and I talked to Morton and I said, I said, you must, were you worried about doing, you know, starting the thing? He goes, no, 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 no. He, he does this thing, this, which I passed on to a couple of the people is quite a good tip. Um, is that he has a, uh, he makes himself a little kind of mock rehearsal thing to sing along to, to warm up before shows. And he does the songs he's going to open up with in a higher key. Um, so, so he was rehearsing backstage, warming up to take on me. In a in a higher musical key than than the real one, and so he when he went on stage to sing with the real one, it was easier than what he'd just been doing in the in the dressing room. You understand? Um, which I thought was <clears throat> really clever. Really, yeah, really thing. that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and he uh, anyway he sang fantastic all night. It was really really good. Yeah, yeah that 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 album I I, I went um, that just came through management. I guess I don't really remember. Okay, um, and. Um, and I went <clears throat> when I camped out in Oslo, and, and <clears throat> at that time they weren't really working as a trio so much as um, as as individuals with Morton uh-huh. singing on everything, you know. Um, and I was in in one camp. I was in the camp more with Mags, although I okay. I, I kind of went around the house a few times. And was that was, was really, there animosity there? Is that why? No, no, kind of no, no, each no, other? no. In that kind of Scandinavian way, they were all very just all very cool in it. This is the way it is now, and so this is how we're going to work. And you know, I mean, it wasn't. No one okay. was wanted it to be different. Let's put it that yeah. way. It wasn't. There wasn't that kind of pressure, and there wasn't any kind of publishing pressure. It wasn't like that. Okay. But it was a very, very enjoyable experience, and and uh, and I I loved Oslo. I but you know, but I was there um, right around the holidays, and I'd never. Although I'm from Maine in America, I'd, I'd never really spent much time that far north, and and when, and like the sun would come up at like breach the horizon at about 10 30 in the morning yes. and then start, start going down a bit about again, about 12, 15. And, yes. <laughs> and yes. in these pedestrian, in these pedestrian areas, you know, people would be going on their lunch break and be pitch black. Uh-huh. You know, it's like, it was just really, really interesting thing to be around yeah. culturally, you know, totally. But, but yeah, I had a great time there and that was, that was, a, that was a good project. And, good. and I really like, I really like some stuff. And then, and then I mixed it in London. Um, well, did I, some of it anyway, because I remember Mag's coming to um 
to London. We we've stayed in touch all this time too. And then, and then Morton asked me to do something. It was for a. Um, it was a bit later on um, for a movie, and it was a cover of um, "You're Just." Can't take good my time. eyes off of you. Yeah, can't right? take my eyes off of you. You're just too good to be true. Can't take my eyes off of you. You be like heaven to touch. I wanna hold you so much. At long last, love has arrived. I thank God I'm alive. You're just too good to be true. Can't take my eyes off. Part of the way that I stand, there's nothing else to compare. The sight of you leaves me weak. There are no words left to speak. But if you feel like I feel, please let me know that it's real. You're just too good to be true. Can't take my eyes off. And he came to Woodstock for that, and we did it with a band that I put together in Woodstock. And Woodstock's a small town, really. You know, it's like you know, in the winter, there's three thousand people, something like that. And um, and so <laughs> me showing up down at the local breakfast joint with Morton Harkett, for, you know, it um, it it did a lot for my standing with the uh, the, the single mother, the single mothers in town. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. He still looks amazing. He, he talk about amazing. keeping himself in good shape. He looks fantastic. Yeah, and and, and and he does. He really looks after himself, you know. Yeah, that's great. Um, okay, <laughs> tell me about Blur's Park Life. Did you you didn't do the whole record, did you? No, no, I just really did the, the one track. I mean, you know, in the I, end, right? Yeah, because I yeah, because I know yeah. Stephen Street and and uh and there was some talk. I was right in the middle of something, I can't remember what it was, but there was some talk of me doing more because uh, Stephen was a bit pressed as well. Um, but, um, but, uh, but Andy over at, at, at um, food records. Um, so, well, you would, you at least could really got to do this one, you know, this, that, that one track cause they'd started it. Um, and, and they, what the like they're having trouble with it, but, but, you know, they were, they'd kind of gone on to other things and, and um, there was some within the band that should, should be this sort of thing, should be that sort of thing. And then some, you know, so, I met them. I'd met Alex a couple of times at Groucho Club, you know, like socially in London and stuff. And then I met Damon. And, and so, yeah, we decided to do it. They had the drum loop already, which is all okay. looped. Um, it's like, um, I think it's just a two or maybe even two bar loop, a four bar loop. And, and we did pretty much everything else. They'd recorded some of the string stuff with machines, but we put a real player on top. I really wanted to play the vibraphone, but Damon insisted on playing it. <laughs> he can he can be a bit like that. Yeah, and, and, and we get along fine. I, I was there was some tense moments. You know, I was um, because I'm a player myself, and I've been on the other side of the glass, as they say. Um, I I'm, I consider myself to be in there with the player when they're doing uh-huh. stuff. You know, I mean, you know, very rarely anything resembling a reprimand or you know, and and uh, yeah. But Dame is not really like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> and when when Alex, I remember, I was really surprised that one day when Alex was doing his bass part, and um, 
Damon was really lighting into him about simple stuff. And, and I, I came to realize that was just part of the dynamic of the band. Oh, really? Um, and, but I had a very short time. Like for instance, if we were doing an album together, I would have, um, I would have strategized how some of that was working and, and yeah. arranged to do some of the sessions with players myself when Damon was doing right. something else. But, but no, we were on there together and I was, I don't say shocked, but I mean, it, you know, it was really noticeable, you know, that, that, um, like browbeating the guy and <laughs> we yeah. talked to him later, talked to Alex Slater, who's a complete sweetheart, you know, and, uh-huh. um, and, uh, say, I wasn't really expecting that. He goes, ah, oh, you know, that's how he gets, you know, you know, I mean, you're not, you're not really, and Dave, the same, the drummer saying the same, oh, you know, it's Damon, you know, and it's just, that's part of the, just the band, at least at that time, you know, and Steve made a couple of similar comments about that to me. Um, um, but the, but one thing I remember about those sessions was, um, was we were trying to figure out something to do in the instrument, <clears throat> instrumental section. And I thought, well, let's make it like um, one of those French movie kind of things where it's like, you know, when they all go to the brightly lit carnival and so on. Mm. It's like, oh, how are we going to do that? And I said, and I said, well, you know, we could do it like a, like a, like a, hum, like a harmonica thing or, or, or some, you know, and, and, and uh, Damon said, do you play accordion? And I said, yeah, I play <laughs> my first my first mistake, and and uh, he said he said um, yeah yeah bring the crane and we'll do something and and uh, and so that night at home I figured out something to do I don't know if you can recall the middle section it's like this sure yeah descending thing. accordion my real accordion um, which is a beautiful 1963 horner full keyboard you know like all the buttons uh, was in woodstock it wasn't there it was in london uh, what i did have in london was like a practice accordion, which is a beautiful accordion but it was an italian thing from the 70s when they were making the style of accordions that, that were called ladies accordions and the concept was um for a slightly smaller hand a slightly smaller octave reach between thumb and and little finger because you know when you're playing accordion you're not, you not you can't really see the keyboard uh-huh. um, and so you um it's like this kind of body memory thing i mean you know the distance between notes you know just but but me going on to this bringing in this ladies accordion to the studio it felt really awkward to play and i can play accordion but um and so <laughs> it took quite a few takes let's put it that way and it's just it's just like this chromatic descending something you know i could play in my sleep on a real accordion but it was a challenge on this thing and damon was starting to lose his shit <laughs> and it was it's just like just like you know you know i'm sorry but you know and explained to him and he, he kind of understood and he was right on the verge of saying well give me that thing and i'll tell you know and he'd never played it according you know, uh-huh. so before we got to that point and and um, and then he said something to me that I thought was a little 
a little inappropriate and I was doing my best and I was starting to get it. We were having to drop in a few times and, and I just said into the mic, I said, Damon, I'm not in your band. <laughs> you know, and, um, and they go, he kind of smiled a bit and nodded, you know, and then, and then we yeah. finished it up and then it was fine. Um, but um, I like that record. I, I, I that's one thing, one thing from that period that I um uh, that I'll put on just because I like to hear it sometimes. Yeah. It's really, it's really got something. Another story about that is that um, there was an idea. It was, I don't think it was mine. I don't know. Uh, but Damon's Dame record company to do a French version, um, oh. all in French with, with, uh, and I, uh, it's funny. I've had this place here for so many years and I, but I speak French like a sad four-year-old child. You know, I, I, I don't embarrass myself in restaurants or in cabs, but I'm, I'm not, uh -huh. I, I understand more than I let on, which comes in handy sometimes. But um, anyway, so, so the, yeah, so we were going to do a French version. So we went back in the studio with the original masters. And this was a few months later. I mean, I don't really recall how far apart it was. Um, and uh, and a friend of Damon's had um, done a translation of the lyrics, and I said, um, "And is it a good translation?" And Damon said he didn't speak French either. Um, he said, "I think so." And and uh, and I showed it to somebody, and they said, well, "Yeah, well, I mean, this could work, you know, stuff like that." Um, but Damon's pronunciation wasn't so good, and he was like singing his heart out and stuff, and and it sounded good to me, you know. It's like it's the song; it's in French, you know. And then we finished it, and. Um, but and before I mix it, I, I played it to a couple of people, friends of mine from Paris who were in town who were French, and they thought it was ridiculous. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> they just thought the way he was saying some word, it, you know, it was it was supposed to have been yeah something romantic, and it was and it's it, not even it, close. It ended up referring to a dog or something. I mean, yes. it, it was there were some things in, in French where you can re really slip over the line quite easily uh -huh. in terms of pronunciation, and apparently we, we were on the wrong side of the line a few too many times <laughs> oh, no, that's hilarious and so that was adam whether that made it out there someplace on the internet i don't know but we i don't know but, either i'll have to look we, that up uh, that's great we have we abandoned ship though at that point you know it's okay. a noble ex noble experiment i love it <laughs> um we're going to bounce around a little bit we're going to go back to the very beginning because my understanding is that one of your first production credits was on the gleaming spires are you ready for the sex girls Okay, I, like most people, know that song from Revenge of the Nerds, um, as well as All Night Party. But that song, mm -hmm. I, I mean, it's it's hilarious. And I, I didn't even know there was a video, apparently. And I watched the video to get ready to talk to you. And it's a guy's making a lemon meringue pie or something. How did you get, and I'm guessing this is what sort of maybe kicked you off to other 
synthesizer bands is well, if well, that you was do my, sex girls that, that was certainly my first kind of k-rock hit you know i mean yeah and that, and that was out of the polar bear you know in the in the polar bears and you know i was doing quite a, bit, a lot of session work in the 70s as well uh-huh. um and if i talked about this but you know because i I was one of only, I had owned one of only three Yamaha CS80 polyphonic synths in LA and I, and I figured out how to use it. And so I was getting session calls with this guy, Michael Amardian, who was a yeah. very, very, very well-known uh, pianist and also p- producer and arranger. But, but some of the, some of the great producers that, that time I was doing sessions for them. Um, uh, Richard Perry, for instance. Oh, sure. Sure, sure. Richard Perry. Um the point of bringing that up was that, that I, was, I was making and playing in cover bands. I, you know, uh-huh. I, you know, with friends like Steve Diamond, like I said, the f- now famous songwriter. Um, I was making a bit of money, and I and I bought some home recording gear, and I put it into a garage in Sherman Oaks, and that I lived above, and and I learned a lot doing all that, you know. But but um, I'm pretty sure the connection to to, to Les and Dave and Gleaming Spires was. Um, was through that through some i was doing quite a lot of publishing stuff and everyone was trying to get a publishing deal and mm-hmm. but i forget exactly how we met but but um but yeah they had they had quite a few few things and i don't think i did any writing on that I don't remember. but but um yeah it's pretty that's a pretty distant past you know but I, but I, I just remember that being really enjoyable being fun and yeah. being on the radio surprisingly and stuff like that yeah. and and one one really good but among a few things that Came from, good things that came from that period is that is that um, Les and Dave, uh, well, Les and Les Bohem um, introduced me to Sparks um, because they were friends because they were all they'd met each other at Farmers Market, you know where the Sparks. I don't know if you've seen the the. I uh, have. Um, it's Sparks fantastic. Well, well, Les Les talks a few times in that, and so does Dave. Yeah. Um, because because they were um, although they don't mention Gleaming Spires, they mentioned Bates Motel. Which was actually the the band before Gleaming Spires, but I think, or maybe yeah, just after, whatever. And, and they became their band for, I think, Angst in My Pants is one of their best albums. Certainly one of their yep. best rock, rocky type albums, and has a real sound. That guy Mac produced it. The guy who was uh, Roy Thomas Baker's engineer, Reinhold um, Mac, right? Yeah, I guess I guess so. I'm not sure. I don't. I didn't really know much about him, although I heard some stories about those sessions, but. But yeah, I got to know Ron and Russ through that, and and we've been friends ever since. In fact, when uh, Russ and I exchanged several emails when they were on the red carpet at Con for Annette, um, and and that was, and he, he just said it was nuts, you know. And then they were, then they were just in London for the um, for the premiere of um, the the documentary and blah yeah. blah. But, so um, good. So good. Yeah, yeah. I really, I really. It, it, arguably a little long, but they cover they cover all they cover everything, you know. And yeah. I think really, really well. I I, I rate um, Edgar Wright. In fact, I'm going to go see Lost in Soho tomorrow. Um, oh, the, uh, really? His new movie, yes. Yeah, yeah. very cool. Very oh, cool. Sorry, okay. I, I, I I digressed, but you know, no. something about Gleaming Spires, yeah, because I I remember almost nothing about the making. No, that's of fine. The, I just that thought record, that yeah. that's such an oddity on your resume, but it's yeah, everything has to start somewhere, and that's uh, that seems like that's where it does. Yeah, I suppose yeah. so. Yeah, it's okay. Thing. And all right, uh, I just got a couple more. Is that okay? Yeah, go. You sure? Okay. Dubstar, goodbye.
Um, I wonder, wonder if that was going to come up. Um, yeah. Is that, is that okay? I mean, so yeah, 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 there's great stuff. Stars is just one of the best. So well, that's, and on, I'm, that's on, that's on disgraceful. That's on, I did too. Oh, uh, did I get it yeah. backward? Okay. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yes. Well, stars is one of the best songs ever. And I'm guessing a band like Dubstar is so heavily influenced by Pet Shop Boys and New Order and Erasure that they want that guy to come work on their stuff. I think there was, yeah, I think there was a bit of a calling card thing involved in that. Um, um, but um, yeah, we get along fantastically right from the word go. Um, and we that was also done at Real World, that that album. And um, and we just had a, a great time. And Sarah was quite raw as a vocalist. And um and I think I helped put her at ease. And and that was another thing where Steve Hillier and Steve Steve Hillier and I, well, I'm still very close friends with all of them, actually, yeah. although they're not together in that unit anymore. Um, in fact, Sarah um, and her boyfriend bought a house, you know, like <laughs> that I could almost sit with a rock from my house. Really? Yeah. Nice. And uh, I just talked to, to Chris, the guitar player, last week. Anyway, <clears throat> um, so, yeah, because – Steve was was a bit hard on Sarah sometimes, and I would I would be it was kind of a good cop bad cop thing. I did it, there was some good effects from from that, you know, because she really stepped up in a way that she had never been asked to before, and and she did great. You know, her vocals on that album are good and charming, and 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 yeah, I really there's some great stuff. And and Steve's a fantastic songwriter, and and um, and he at that point he was really pretty much writing all the material uh, for both. Um, that album and the next one that I did. Um, but uh, Chris, meanwhile, was uh, beavering away um, writing as well. But Steve was sort of the powerhouse and also the leader of the band. And so he was getting all his material on. But um, Goodbye ended up being a bit of a prophetic album title, yeah. you know, because that was kind of it. And then then they kind of lunged at it again a few years later. Um, but then the, the two of them, um, uh, Chris and Sarah, uh, kind of you know restarted the, the dubstar yeah thing. i think they um, just put out a new album or something i was gonna yeah, reach well, out I to them to see if they wanted well, to come on and talk about it well i produced it actually you um, produced the new dubstar yeah not the one before they did they did the album before with youth and and yeah uh, and, and there was some quite good stuff on that but what but what i was going to mention though was that and this is a good quote from sarah you know because because i was I was really impressed with the quality of songs without Steve, frankly, because uh -huh. um, I I really rate Steve, you know, on a number of levels. Um, um, but and Sarah said, well, you know, um, you know, Chris was always the the George Harrison of Dubstar. Ah, <laughs> interesting. He had all this all this stuff and all this writing, and he contributed. He got his name on 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 a couple of things on each album. Uh, I think his name might be on Stars too, you know. But but like I said, Steve was the the dominant songwriter. Okay course in more ways than one yeah um and uh but yeah we did um we did them together we you know we started last year um because of the, all the lockdown stuff you know yeah. it had been going on and on a bit and then and then it got finished but then they couldn't um but then it, the release got put back because um i don't know if you've caught one of this from anyone else but there's been a, a tremendous back backlog of vinyl fabrication um i've and, heard of this yeah yeah and it um what if it's affected their release date by four months you know and so mm -hmm. now now the album's coming out next year yeah but there's been but there's there's new stuff from around i mean you know we did our lockdown record which i co-wrote with i wrote co-wrote two three things with chris on this um um called hygiene strip i don't know if you came across that yeah um, 
Wait in my space in the queue See me just behind the striped line Crumpolis discontaminated just like the view Shelter in places anew Safer spaces turn the air blue Was holding out for a feeling and a face that I knew Yeah, that was me and Chris and Sarah. And, nice. And, and I kind of joined Dubstar for, for that. And, and also there was one, uh, um, I can see you outside. That came out. These are all kind of warm-up things. And originally, plates. Yeah, uh, I, I didn't I didn't co-write that one. But, but you didn't this, do that one? This, okay. this one uh, no, I did. I produced all the stuff, you know, but uh, okay. well, me and Chris, me and Chris. But because Chris was doing so much on his own that I thought he should have co-production. And, nice. and um, because, he, you know, we were sending files back and forth. And for the whole course of the al- of this album, Chris and I never ended up in the same room together. Whoa. Sarah Sarah and I did all the vocals together, though, because she, she was coming down. That's even great. during the lock, lockdown thing, she was coming down to near me, and, and um, she was. We did the vocals in my studio, and I mixed it my, in my place. Huh. Um, but um, there's some terrific stuff on the album. Really, yeah. But you know, when we release hygiene strip, besides wanting to be part of the first wave of everyone wearing a mask and being paranoid, <laughs> um, we um, um, that was originally warming up to a release as early as the beginning of of that next year. <laughs> you know, but but um, but that's just not the way the schedules worked out. Yeah. Although we had all the material. Although having said that, that the um, the song, which is the next single uh, called Token, the one that's going to happened just before the album comes out that was written in the gap when we otherwise would have had finished you know you know what i mean really? so, so, that, yeah. so that was so that was one good thing about having the uh, the schedule go crazy okay because um, I, I, I i'm quite fond of that song yeah so good. i'm happy i'm happy with the dubster album um and yeah so now i guess uh, late january february i guess or something okay like that. i'm gonna reach out to them i've been meaning to do it anyway to have them come on it because i love them and yeah, well, they're great, and and, and, Chris, and Chris. If you've never spoken to them, Chris is um, well. They're both very, very intelligent, but Chris is hilarious. Is he? <laughs> he's, okay. One of, he's generally one of the funniest people I know. He's, okay, yeah, he's, good. He's very, I'm going to do cool. it. Yeah. Well, um, Stephen. I mean, I, there's still dozens of other things that I could get into, but I won't. I will say I emailed Dr. Robert uh, from the Blow Monkeys, and uh, oh. he told me to tell you hello. Oh, nice. and well, tell, tell me I say hello to you, and and don't tell him I forgot that I made a record. That's okay. That's okay. I know he, you couldn't remember, and I wasn't sure, so I emailed him and said, "What did he do with you exactly?" And he said, "It was it pays to belong, and this is your pays life." To belong. Yeah, that's right. That's right.
the greatest songs in his canon, but they were good, you know. And and uh, and I and since since it came up the other day, you you brought it up. I remember going over to the place where he was living at the time in Camden, going to his place and and kind of meeting up. And when we were just about to go into the studio, but I don't remember which studio it was. I don't remember much about it at all. And I don't know if it's just because there was so much going on at the time, because I was smoking so much pot at the time. I don't know why. Uh -huh. When I um. But when someone pointed it out to me, and I looked, I, I looked myself up on Google, and I saw, I saw that actually I did record with the Blue Monkeys. Yeah. I, um, I listened to it, and it was slightly embarrassing that I'd forgotten because I really I'm usually I'm usually not no no not the record no, no oh, okay. embarrassing that Just I that embarrassing I had, that you forgot that yeah. I had really misplaced that someplace in my in my somewhat um, uh, overheated filing system. But uh, <laughs> there you go. I love them. Uh, I um, yeah they. Uh, I'm I'm glad that, I've got that, you know Robert. That, yeah, that that first um, that first big hit was was a real item. You know, I mean, it really yeah, really set, set the bar high for that it. kind of thing that was happening around that time. Was, yeah, right. Well, uh, look, you're a legend, and uh, we I mean we <laughs> we on. danced. We covered other stuff besides the '80s, and you're you would have been a legend if it had only been the '80s. And yet, we've talked about a dozen other things that solidify the legend. <laughs> you, I can't. There are very few producers who are as responsible for creating the music that means the most to me than you so well, thank you for everything you've put in the world thank you for everything those are very kind words thank you very much <laughs> yes yeah. absolutely yeah. i mean it from the bottom of my heart um, well thanks it's made my life better yeah that's nice nice to say thanks a lot. Yeah. all right there you have it stephen Hag, guy's a legend like i've said before i i can't think of too many people more responsible for creating my taste in music than producer Stephen Haig. The guy is a legend. Um, and I'm so jealous that Mark and Adiotography got hit to him before I did. I've been trying for years, but I, in a way I'm glad because they so thoroughly and effectively cover his 80s career that it allowed me to kind of freed me up to talk about all the other stuff. So again, if you have not listened to that series on the 80sography podcast, I highly, highly encourage you to do it. And if you're new to that podcast, I equally encourage you to check out everything else they do. It's great. There's a lot of crossover between the two of us. Mark does what he does very well. Now, because I'm so jealous, I wanted to close it out with another one of my favorite 80s songs that uh, that Haig had a pro had a hand in. To me, The Innocence is Erasure's masterpiece. And Yahoo, which you're listening to right here, is probably my favorite song on that album. So let's close it out with some Yahoo, all right? Now... Our guest next week, I'm really curious if you guys are going to guess who this is. She was a noted backup singer in the UK for years and became so professionally and personally intertwined with one of the big bands, big UK bands of the 80s, that she basically became another member of that group. Okay? She also had her own solo career and did other things, but I'm really curious if anyone out there can guess who I'm talking about by the description I just gave you. That's who's coming up next week. I'm excited for it. Huge thanks, to, as always, to my right-hand man, Jan the Man Makevich. Thank you, buddy, for doing this with me. Guys, like our page on Facebook. Send us a message on there. Send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Next Sunday, the 16th, I think it is, Yan and I are recording our year-end recap special. When we do this, we always count down our listener picks for the best episodes of 2021, and we need your lists. So please send me email, Facebook, Twitter, whatever. 
Send me your rankings of the best episodes of the year. You can pick one, you can pick three, you can pick ten, whatever you want. But if you can rank them, that's even better because I weigh the point system to figure out who the winner is. All right? That's coming up in a couple of weeks. Thanks, everybody. We love you. Let's go.